Hello, you are listening to episode 14 of Poldark Podcast, a podcast created by Poldark fangirls about the show and the book series of the same name. This week, we will be discussing series one, episode two, and we'll be starting our book club with the first five chapters of The Black Moon. My name is Michelle. I live in the States. You can find me on my blog, Poldark Muses, that's Poldark, M-M-M-U-S-E-S, and on Twitter at M-M-M-U-S-I-N-G-S. Hello, my name is Delenda. I live in France. I blog at Britishly So on Tumblr, and I tweet at Delenda Dia, that's D-A-L-A-N-D-A-D-I-I-A. And my name is Rita. I live in the UK. I blog at Princess of Poldark and tweet at Rita Bites, and they're all spelt how they sound. <laughs> so, without further ado, let's start with the episode summary. So the episode starts with Judd trying to discourage Ross from pursuing his plans to reopen Will Leisure. Tis in the blood your father say. Mining, tis in the blood. Like a vein of copper. Just the bread of life. Interposed with glimpses of Will Leisure, Ross's musings over maps, charts, and hunks of copper as Will Wreath is forced closed, debts called in for payment by the Warlegans, and Lord Bassett commits suicide. And it's one of the most beautiful sequences of the series. Despite Judd's dire warnings, Ross wonders if his father would attempt to dissuade him from his thoughts. Smash cut to the shrieks of Demelza in the yard. Her head is thrust into the pump as she washes her hair. Ross watches the scene from an upper room. A self-satisfied smile on his face, but she is not amused. Jim comes to the house, wounded by soldiers forcing the mine closure, to break the news. Another smash cut to a disheveled George, hurriedly striding into the library at Cardew, asking for confirmation of the news and of Lord Bassett's suicide. George wonders if this move will reflect poorly upon them, ignoring Bassett's pleas for mercy. Carrie is his usual snidely whiplash self, asking if they were in the business of sentiment or profit. He's such a lovely man, that Carrie Warlegan. A woman's voice speaks from the door, and we meet Margaret for the first time, a local prostitute from the Red Lion. She's clearly the reason why George looks less than perfectly quaffed. Will I be going now, Mr. George? Have you been dismissed? No, but... Half and I have other engagements. None that reward you so well. Return to my chamber. And in future, you will address me as sir. Yes, sir. Back at Nampara, where Ross gets the 411 on what happened, and Ross surmises it was the bank's doing, not Lord Bassett. Grambler is the only mine open in the area and Jim's lung condition keeps him from working below ground. Jim asks Ross for a job as a farmhand in order to keep his mother and his sisters from starving. Prudy, who's still upset over Demelza's presence in the household, is not amused. Her complaints fall on deaf ears. Demelza stares at the closed library door, her fascination with the room clear even now. A wonderful shot of the library's attractions follow. Books, spinet, artifacts from America, and the master of the house, of course. Ross picks up 
the hundred pounds Charles had sent over as encouragement for him to leave. Then, as a sudden flashback of Elizabeth along the cliffs, he fingers the ring again. Jesus, just sell the damn thing already. Uh, he tosses it onto the desk and leaves. A great shot of Ross galloping along the cliff edge as he rides to Trenwith. As he approaches the house, he sees Elizabeth in an upper window, one we will become intimately acquainted with in series two. She backs away as he enters the house. Ross walks in at breakfast time for the Podarchs as Aunt Agatha and Satan, oh, I mean Charles, nibble on a dainty food served by poor Verity. Agatha asks Ross when he plans to leave for London. Not so fast there. Charles believes Ross will do better than his father, at which point Agatha makes a dig on Ross being better than his cousin as well. As they discuss the wheel wreath closure, Ross asks if Grambler has loans with the wheel luggins. Charles waves off concerns over his because George and Francis are BFFs. Ross considers this before smiling up at Verity. You must visit me soon, Verity. And neglect her duties here? She has no time for gadding about. Effing jackass. As Ross leaves, Elizabeth resumes her perch on the window, staring after him. She returns to her room, clearly preoccupied, having seen Ross for what we assume is the first time since he confronted her about her decision-making, or lack thereof. Frances enters the room as she's pondering in front of her mirror. When she mentions she's tired, he asks to join her. What's clear about this scene is that she's not at all that thrilled about the idea. And we know why, don't we, class? <laughs> Demelza, back at Numpara, is doing the laundry with Garrick at her side. Prudy gleefully tosses her own dirty clothes into the pile. Demelza sighs and continues her work. Meanwhile, Paul, Zaki, and Mark run up to meet Ross, who thank him for giving Jim a job and ask if he could do the same for them below ground. He can't make any guarantees at this time. They currently work at Grambler, but say they would jump ship if he called, especially if the wages were fair, which they aren't, because asshole Charles. <laughs> Ross pucks around in leisure again and runs into Francis when he comes out. He mentions his thoughts about reopening it, and his cousin is a bit incredulous. Interesting idea, Ross. Yeah. Smash cut to Elizabeth gathering eggs on at Trenwith. Verity comes to stop her. It is not a job for the lady of the house. Elizabeth asks, what may she do then? There is much you may do, Elizabeth. You are the lady of the house. You may go out when you choose, pay calls, attend balls. And may you not? I'm 25, unmarried. I spin and I bake, pick preserves, I dose the servants with postets when they're ill. My life is not your life. Ross goes to Truro to discuss his options for opening the mine. No experience, no capital, few allies. He will need investors. Harris is doubtful given the uncertainty of the times. Ross goes for a sulk at the Red Lion and catches the attention of Margaret. And damn it, he's still wearing that stupid ring. Ross declines Margaret's offer, but she sits down anyway, taking his hand to read his palm. She takes a stab or two before she hits on the problem. Lost love, and wonders if she loves him still. Cut to Elizabeth, 
outside this time. She's sitting on a bench and looking sad as usual. Poor, poor baby. Manly horseback riding along the cliffs, where we meet up with Verity, who has escaped from Trenwith to have a ride. They head to Dampara, where Verity is pleased with the improvements he's made. He introduces her to Demelza, who's wearing some abdominal old clothes. Her hair looks fluffy and clean, though, so we're beginning to see her transformation. Verity has come to ask Ross a favour, to agree to escort her to the upcoming ball, because she's a precious cinnamon roll. So cute. Ross fiddles with the invitation, the ring, and just why hasn't he thrown it away yet? And broods. He's still deciding if he wants to go. Meanwhile, at Trenwith, Francis asks Elizabeth to reconsider her earlier declination for the ball because, you know, he loves to show off his wife to the world and just God, she's not a damn trophy wife. Oh, but wait, yes, she is. Never mind. Back at Nampara, Ross picks up his coat and stomps out of the library. Where's he going? To the dance. You don't look too glad about it. Gentle folks is strange. So it's time for the ball. <laughs> One of our favorite parts of pure dramas. Fancy folks are dressed to the nines and dancing about the assembly room. Verity and Ross arrive <clears throat> and she looks so happy and pretty. Ross declares that, as official escort, he is entirely at her service. Verity tells him not to be, for there be pretty maids all about, giving him the serious ones over, including Ruth Teague, who looks rather fetching. Ross smiles at her. There is, of course, gambling taking place in the drawing room, where we see George tossing money about with Dr. Choke and Francis. Choke disdains the miners at Wheel Wreath. You'd hardly expect them to celebrate the closure. They have no business to have an opinion at all. <laughs> Some would say that view is outdated. In America, for instance, they have more liberal views. All men created equal. Preposterous. <laughs> Distinctions of rank must be preserved. Hmm. Especially when they're so dearly bought. Ugh. If looks could kill, George would have slayed Francis. Meanwhile... <laughs> Back at Nampara, Demelza is on her hands and knees scrubbing the floor while Judd and Prudy chillax by the fire, toasting their master's health with their master's booze and the gratitude that they have for him for providing for their ease and comfort. Demelza is not amused. Mm. Back at the ball, Ross is collecting some of his winnings from the gambling table as another verbal sparring match with George, clearly still stinging from Francis's earlier jab at his humble beginnings, he feels the need to poke at Ross's recent financial challenges, all of the menial labour he's been doing about his property. Ross is like, whatevs. More spitey banter as per usual. As George leaves, Ross glances over to see Francis and Elizabeth walking in. She glances in his direction, and he looks like a wounded puppy. Aww. Enter the scene, Andrew Blaney, who spies Verity sitting next to one of the columns, looking sad and dejected. He asks his friend if he knows her, and he's soon introduced to her. Ross looks on with interest before Ruth Teague, again, who is making her move, interrupts his thoughts. Ross glances at her mother, who nods her head 
in what appears to be approval. Watch it, Ross. Someone's got their eyes on you. Verity and Captain Blamey are getting acquainted, and she's already starry-eyed over the whole thing. Ruth asks Ross if he's fond of dancing, and R Ross makes an excuse of not having the refinement for such things. Uh-huh. At least Darcy was straightforward in his declinations. But I digress. <laughs> Back at Nampara, Demelza steals into the library and looks at all of the items that have intrigued her for so long. Ross escapes Ruth's clutches and runs into Pasco and a couple of folks who might be interested in investing, Tronaglas and Captain Henshaw, who was mine captain at leisure before it closed. They'd worked on it for tin, but there were signs of copper. Too bad it closed. Ross asks Pasco to see if there are others interested in a little speculation and requires discretion, with a quick glance back at George. Message received, sir, or captain. <laughs> Meanwhile, Blamey has drawn a sketch of his ship to explain the working parts of it to his newest fan, Verity. He is clearly dazzled by her and asks when he can see her again. Verity blushes and isn't certain. Back at Nampara, Demelza's leaving the library when she runs into Judd, looking very sinister, and asking her what she's doing there. Just looking. Just looking. There's books and maps and knives and an arp cord. Well, can he read? Can he play? He can try. There'd be nothing in there for the likes of we. Unless we'd be getting ideas above a station. No. Go home. What? About where he come from. He don't belong here. Back at the bull, Blamey says he wants to be better acquainted, and Verity agrees, although she is horrified she spoke the words loud and wonders what he must think of her. Hmm, duh. Ross spies Blamey and Verity still talking and heads in that direction. When Ruth appears again and coyly asks if she was engaged to him for this dance, Ross politely refuses and excuses himself, leaving Ruth crestfallen. Ruth goes to her mother to share her disappointment. Ross decides to go in the opposite direction, which unfortunately leads him straight to Francis and Elizabeth. After asking if Ross is there to take his wife off his hands, dude, seriously, stop reading ahead to series two. Francis offers Ross Elizabeth's hand for the next dance. Ross takes her hand and it's as if the room has gone silent. It's the first time they've touched since his return. He leads her to the dance floor and after a moment of smouldering looks, Elizabeth's coolness begins to thaw. While they dance, George and Francis talk. He asks George if he knows the name of the dude Verity's talking to. Uh, Captain Blamey, master of the Lisbon packet. Oh, a pretty catch. And at her age, she won't get any more chances. Her father couldn't spare her. And Elizabeth would miss her. Mm. Though, doubtless, your wife would find ways of distracting herself. Francis looks over to see Ross and Elizabeth dancing and looking at each other that's decidedly not cousinly at all. Elizabeth's smiling, she's blushing, and she's making cow eyes at Ross. Francis appears to be pretty unnerved by it. Verity shifts her attention away from Blamey for a second and sees what Francis sees. She is concerned. The gossips have already started clucking. 
Verity takes Blaney over to introduce him to Ross and Elizabeth, and after they exchange pleasantries, Ross escorts Elizabeth to the punch bowl, his hand low on her back. Oh, son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As Blaney is telling Verity of his the sincerity of his attentions towards her, she observes Elizabeth and Ross's laughter and actions and the reaction it's having on the crowd. She breaks away from Blaney to go head this train wreck off at the pass. Verity tells Elizabeth Francis is looking for her. Elizabeth leaves, looking a bit shamefaced, as she should. Mm-hmm. As she goes to find him, Verity warns him that the hands around the room are already clucking with gossip, especially when one gives them cause. Ross doesn't like being slapped on the wrist, so he knocks back his glass of wine and leaves. George catches up to Ross as he heads up the stairs. Ross Poldark in love. Quite the spectacle. Though, may I say, an excellent choice. Ruth Teague is unlikely to remind one of a previous attachment. Oh, will you stop stirring the pot, George? Ross storms off to the Red Lion. Margaret notices his arrival and asks if she can be of service. One service is all I require. He grabs her, grabs her, and and they head upstairs. <laughs> yeah. Damn. <laughs> That's my Ross Ooh, voice. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> Meanwhile, Demelza lies on her pallet by the fire, snuggled up to Garrick, and Elizabeth spies Frances from her perch on the catwalk, sitting at the dining table with a bottle of rum, looking pensive and preoccupied. Hmm, I wonder <laughs> what that's about. Cut to the next morning, an upper room at the Red Lion. There are clothes all over the place. Ross wakes, uncertain of where he is for a split second before his memory returns. Margaret stirs next to him, looking like a very contented cat. (laughs) When she comments about his lack of verbal skills, uh, that's not what he was there for now, was it? He says he was not in a talkative mood. Meanwhile, in the fields near Nampara, Demelza is picking flowers when she hears a horse coming up to a stop nearby. She peers over and is pleased to see it's Ross heading down to the beach. She crouches and spies on him as he bathes in the sea. And she is clearly intrigued by what we what she sees. And so are we all. <laughs> <laughs> Later, Charles pops in for a visit with his nephew and discovers his plans to reopen the mine. He suggests Ross takes on Francis as a partner. And Ross asks his uncle to encourage Francis to be discreet particularly with his good friend, George. The next day, Demelza is doing her chores, and once again, Judd and Pretty are sitting around doing nothing. Jim has readied the horse for him to head to Truro. Ross sees Demelza carrying a heavy basket of firewood. You look weary to the bone. Have they been making you a beast of burden? No, sorry, be content, sir. It'd be that Judd, he'd be saying I got ideas, but I ain't got ideas. No? I do know me place. Your place is where I say it is. He tells her to fetch her clock, which she's never had. Ross and Demelza ride into Truro. Demelza looking like she's freezing to death. He sends her off with some money to go purchase some pilchards while he goes off to his meeting with the potential investors. On his way, he sees Verity walking on the street above him. When he calls her, she pauses, 
but keeps walking. Mm. Ross runs into Elizabeth again. She's coming out of the haberdashers with a bunch of packages. Ross offers to carry them for her and there's more fleeting glances. She asks if he enjoyed the ball and said Ruth appeared to be taken with him. He says he barely remembers and she suggests he pursue the girl and when he asks if that would please Elizabeth, she takes her packages and leaves. All of this is witnessed by George who skulks over to the Red Lion. He's got a goal in mind and that's to do more pot stirring. As Demelza's bargaining with the fishmonger, she notices Verity leaving Blamey's house. Say what? Ross? <laughs> Ross arrives at the Red Lion and sees George crouched over Francis, whispering in his ear. When Ross asks if Francis is ready to go to the meeting, he declines, stating he needs something he can depend on. Ross side-eyes George, who is at the bar with two tankards, beckoning Francis to join him. So much for that. Ross heads over to the meeting room and gets things ready. Several distinguished-looking gentlemen arrive, including Henshaw, who asks after Francis. They are both disappointed by Francis' decision. Once the meeting begins, many around the table speak of concerns about the current market. With a small operation, overhead will be low at leisure. Reith's closure means the market for um, copper is low, so the price should rise in response. Ross spells out the costs and the roles he and Henshaw will take and asks for an initial investment of 50 pounds from each gentleman for the first three months. Now that George has waylaid Francis, he attempts to wheedle more information about Ross's plans. Is he seeking investment? Francis puts him off. George says Willuggan's bank would be happy to accommodate him, but perhaps he doesn't value friendship or family. Ross explains his reasons for choosing Pasco because of the Warlegans' business practice of closing mines until they start to struggle. Should profit be the be-all and end-all? <laughs> I'm inclined to agree. Now, we know Reith was struggling, but closing it cost the shareholders dear. And the miners dearer. The owner has life. We cannot choose our family, but we can choose our friends. And as a friend, I say to you, if ever you need my assistance... And what assistance might I need? What any man needs, someone to alert him if he sees his friend being played for a fool. A fool? In love, in business, at cards. It's true, my losses have been considerable of late. Then let me prove our friendship by advancing whatever might defray them. Ross concludes the meeting, putting money down, the rest of the men around the table follow suit, and they toast to a leisure. Ross looks out the window and sees Francis and George walking down the street, the latter with his arm around the former's shoulders. Ross has a sad... As Ross leaves the tavern, Demelza approaches with her bucket of fish. And try to swizzle me. I beat him down. Expect no less. Good day's work for us both. What am I, a circus attraction? Poorly dressed one. Come with me. Demelza soon walks out of the haberdashery with a brand new cloak and is looking mighty pleased about it. So pleased that she forgets the bucket of fish. <laughs> <laughs> Ross picks it up and carries it, smiling at her pleasure. So cute. 
Meanwhile, at Trenwith, Elizabeth overhears Francis and his father arguing about someone's behaviour at the ball and assumes they are talking about her and Ross. Ross and Demelza ride home with her behind him this time, her new red cloak flying out behind her as they ride. Once home, Demelza gets to work breaking down the fish, so her hands are all a mess when someone knocks on the door. It's Elizabeth. It's the first time she's seen this woman, and Demelza is a bit godsmacked. Ross finds Elizabeth in the parlor and asks if she's been given refreshment. She says the maid has done her best, which looks pretty horrible. Uh, there's not much in the house. Uh, Demelza, a great smear of fish blood on her cheek, bobs a horrible curtsy and leaves the room. Oh, Ross. What is it? How to even begin to put it into words? Don't try. You love Francis, I love Francis, but this cannot be allowed to continue. Elizabeth implores Ross to talk to both Francis and Charles. He agrees to follow her over. Once he arrives, he is prepared for whatever is to come and discovers the issue is with Verity. She's been seeing Blamey behind their backs. Ross agrees to close ranks with the rest of the family to keep her from seeing Blamey again. Verity catches Ross before he leaves and tells him the story. His wife had tried to hit him and he pushed her away. Uh, she fell and hit her head. There was no malicious intent involved and he's done time in prison and lost his commission as part of his punishment. So she finally says to Ross, you of course know how this must feel, and Ross certainly does. So he agrees to let them meet at Nampara. Oh, God. Great idea, Ross. So once they're settled in the parlor, Ross goes out to do some work. And he sees Ruth Teague and her mother walking up the drive. He tells Jim to make sure his guests stay in the parlour. And Ross takes the Teagues walking around the house. Where Mrs Teague speaks glowingly about her daughter's accomplishments. She also asks if Verity is still seeing that sea captain. Ross stammers a bit then says no. He tells the ladies he must get back to work. The Teagues has a sad. While the two lovebirds talk, Ross asks Demelza if she's heard from her family. She scoffs and doesn't think that she will. They talk a bit about mining and how it's in both of their blood. Demelza wonders whether it's a blessing or a curse. Ominous music plays as Ross rides out from Nampara and comes upon Francis and Charles heading his way. He was on his way to Will Leisure. He tells them the meeting went well and he hopes Francis will reconsider with the agreement to keep George in the dark, of course. Clearly, George's foot steering has had its desired effect. Ew. They burst in and discover Verity and blame a meeting. Angry words are said, and when Verity stands up to declare her right to choose her own life, Frances throws her bodily into her father's arms and confronts Blamey. More angry words, and Frances throws a punch. Blamey's punch finds its target, and Frances hits the ground. When he stands, he challenges Blamey to a duel. Accepted. Two dueling pistols just happen to be on the wall nearby. How convenient. And everyone storms outside for the festivities. Blamey is hit in the hand, Francis in the neck. Ross carries Francis up to the bedroom and asks Prudy for water. As he lays him on the bed, he pauses. It's another opportunity to consider letting Francis die. 
damn, dude. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> but he shakes that off and asks Prudy to help him stop the bleeding. Prudy, unfortunately, is afraid of the blood. Meanwhile, Verity is saying a tearful goodbye to Blaney because there's no way for her to see him now, not after this. Demelza appears upstairs with the water and says she will help. She's not afraid. Ross watches as she tears cloths and hands him what he needs to staunch the bleeding, clearly impressed with her skills. Elizabeth arrives, demanding to know where Francis was and charges upstairs. Ross leaves them to talk and heads downstairs. He's drinking straight from the brandy bottle, of course. Demelza tells him his cousin owes him his life and asks where he learned how to treat a wound like that. She looks amazed when he tells her it was on the battlefields of Virginia. Charles tells Ross that he's a disgrace to the name of Poldark and offers no thanks for what he do he's done. He just saved your son's stupid life, dude. Elizabeth, on the other hand, does not blame Ross for what happened and says that she is grateful because she needs Frances as she's with child. Help. After they leave, Ross is brooding at the dinner table again. Demelza comes to clear away something when he grabs her wrist. Dwight Halfwood branded across my forehead. Oh? Yet I feel for it again. Build a castle out of winks and smiles. All the while. I should be grateful. What clearer proof is needed? I don't know, Ross, because I figured witnessing their vows would be enough. What a quaint thought. He tells Demelza to fetch all of their servants because they have work to do. They head over to Wheel Leisure to begin getting the place in order. Demelza is cooking some fish they bought in town over an open fire for their dinner. Meanwhile, dinner is a somber affair at Trenwith, with Francis upstairs recuperating. Demelza hands Ross a platter of food. He compliments her on what she did today and how valuable she must be to her family. Sorry. And if you miss them, if you feel that their need is greater than mine. He'd be wanting rid of me. What? He'd be wishing me gone. Sir, I work harder. I, I scrub and scour and Demelza, your work is more than satisfactory. Well, then why, sir? I was merely offering you the chance to return. Getting crystal clear that um, Demelza would eventually become mistress of Nampara with all the chores and uh, the hard work that she was putting into her, her work. So, um, yeah, it was... a. Uh, Good second episode, but I was just so over the uh, Elizabeth Ross drama. And I was just like, get rid of that mother effing ring, too. Because <laughs> it's doing no good. <laughs> right? So, favorite scenes. Because mine was Demelza's delight at the red cloak. Because it gets me super emotional every time. Because she has, like, such a hard life. And, like, this little act of kindness from Ross, it just means so much. And it made me respect Ross a hell of a lot. Yeah, this was this was one of my favorite scenes. And the little grin on his face when he sees her pleasure, it just makes me grin every time I see it. And the fact that he's carrying her bucket of fish, which, you know, for a master to do that for his servant, uh, that is, that's pretty special. Three words, cute, cute, and cute. 
yeah, it was uh, adorable, and even like even if uh, people around they were like, uh, "What the heck?" <laughs> she didn't even care about people looking at her, and even Ross. So it was so so special, and uh, again another landmark in their um, relationship yes. <laughs> journey. Yes, um, I think for me it's the scene uh, when they're all sharing dinner at Wheel Leisure, and Ross gives Demelza the option of returning home to Elugan if she needs to, and she looks at him with those, like, just crystal blue eyes and tells him that she belongs with him. Gah! It just kills me every time. And a girlfriend can stuff a lot of bread into her mouth at once. <laughs> I was afraid she was going to hurt herself. And when he asks her if he has um, idiot or half-wit written on his forehead... I wanted to say, make a note of that, my love. You will need to revisit that forehead in a little while. <laughs> True that. I also loved um, the shot of Demelza being a peeping Tom. Yes. It's just such a wonderful expression of her burgeoning sexuality and awareness of Ross. And it's, it's really rare to get like a female gaze moment in mainstream media. And like, Lord bless period drama. <laughs> continually provides us with these moments where we're just like, yes, take more content. <laughs> yes. And Demelza being like, mm -hmm. doesn't look too happy about it when she's going to the pool. <laughs> she just looks completely perplexed. Perplexed. So cute. She's so funny in this episode. Yeah, she is. She is. Oh my god, and the bit where she's like screaming at him that he's making Yeah, so cute. <laughs> and her little her little cut thing when <laughs> when Verity arrives and then she just Oh my god. Even Garrett was looking at her. He was like, What are you doing, Mama? Okay, I see. <laughs> and she scuttles away. Right. Like, oh my god, let me get out of here. Oh, she's she's adorable in this episode. Mm -hmm. So adorable. Yes. I uh, loved the episode opening um, with Judd and Ross. Even though their relationship is not the warmest <laughs> relationship on the show. But, um, yeah, um, I thought the... Uh, it was wonderfully directed, and um, like we said, it was one of the most beautiful sequences uh, of the series, and uh, because it pretty much shows um, the, the injustice towards the poor, but also the injustice uh, of the banks and uh, the devastating consequences it had uh, on uh, people. And uh, I also loved Judd's line um, when he was talking about mining, uh, when uh, she's, he said, uh, she's your salvation and your downfall. Because we know that those words are gonna be true as well in series two, because you know, mm -hmm, yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and I also love the uh, comedic scenes uh, uh, with Ross and uh, Ruth Teague, <laughs> her mother. It was just so damn funny, and uh, yeah, girl, you just can't take a hint. Like you but, just you know, can't. He's pretty damn hot, so you know. Yeah, I, I don't blame her. I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's pretty he's pretty damn hot. So, you know, it would be I would I would do everything I could to try and and snare that rabbit if I could. <laughs> now, 
Less fun. Would you let Andrew Blamey marry your daughter or sister? Who wants to go first? I am just going to start. I mean, no. Uh, but, um, yeah, no. But let's say that everybody makes a mistake. Otherwise, we would not be called human beings. So I think that um, we should give the men a chance because, um, you know, and uh, because we saw in season two that he is a pretty good husband to um, to Verity and he is loving, he's caring, and uh, yeah. And yeah, we know that... Um, that Francis was uh, pretty adamant about uh, not wanting him as a um, in the in the family, but uh, I think it's just because he needed to um, you know lash out and wind after the Ross and Elizabeth situation slash drama at the ball, and um, yeah, so I think uh, Verity uh, making wedding plans with a, a guy that she a man that she met. <laughs> Um, at a ball and uh, five minutes later they were like okay so let's just do this and let's do this let's go there with your ship and uh, so yeah I think it was like the perfect opportunity for Francis to uh, lash out and just um, yeah just uh, release all the anger he had uh, in him um well, not many people know this, but when I first got out of college back in the Stone Age, I worked in criminal justice, and I've met and spent time with a lot of convicted felons, uh, including individuals who committed domestic violence. And some of them were women who abused the men in their lives, too. While there are many that I wouldn't let near any member of my family, I've known a couple who have done something that they've wound up being held accountable for. They've done their time and completed all of the sentence requirements issued by the judge. It's possible for something horrible like this to have happened. And also, one of the things that we haven't seen is we have not seen Andrew making comments about what happened. All we hear is Verity's uh, version of what Blamey told her. So he very well could have been um, very apologetic, very remorseful about what had happened. We just don't see that. Um, I, I tend to think that Verity is a pretty good judge of character. So I think it, if she has the firsthand account of what occurred, she's going to wind up uh, making a good choice around this. Um, now, I don't know whether or not um, either of your feelings about Blamey uh, comes from, you know, how the explanation was written or performed or maybe a bit of both, but I would try to get to know the man first before denying him outright. But that's just me. Every, I think the way it was handled was that it made it seemed like Francis was unreasonable, like he was the unreasonable person. And in the situation, I was like, well, no, this is like, if I knew the little amount of information that he did, like they never sat down and talked about it. I would have felt the exact same way. Exactly. But that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it, based on what smattering of information he's heard, particularly, you know, if he's heard 
the gossip coming from elsewhere, and I'm and I'm looking at you, George, uh, for this as well. Um, he's he's going to wind up making a rash decision. Uh, so you know, before doing that, he should have sat the man down and had him explain what happened so that he would have gotten the information firsthand instead of getting it from all these other different places because you never know. You never know. But to be fair, Verity never actually tries to facilitate that kind of conversation, does she? She just sneaks around. And maybe that's partly because her father is a complete douche nozzle but it's like it's mishandled by everybody i mean honestly and and you know that whole that whole duel thing uh charles is just standing there you know with his mouth with his mouth hanging open like you know a, a gutted fish um and really not doing anything until it appears that the thing is actually going to happen uh, and and uh, that just makes me crazy. I God, I can't stand that man. I really can't stand that man. Um, why the hell does Ross keep thinking Elizabeth is going to leave Francis for him? Like, damn. Like, I know she's flirting with him, but like leaving her husband for him—that's pretty extreme. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, it's it's utterly ridiculous. Uh, but Elizabeth doesn't do anything to keep him from thinking there's a chance that it could happen. I think it was this episode where my loathing for George was fully engaged, uh, you know, whispering in Francis's ear while the two idiots were dancing. You know, he blew on the bank coals of doubt that ultimately poisoned Francis's mind and led to the behavior that, that we will see as, as we move forward through the series. Well, karma's a bitch, George, and you've got some things that are going to be coming your way, but that's all I'm going to say about it right now. I don't understand. I think, I don't know how I can be sad for us, but at the same time, uh, feeling the need to slap him, to be like, dude, wake up. And, uh, yeah, to me, uh, Elizabeth is not even considering, like, leaving Francis. I mean, that's just not possible. And, um, yeah, she's not going to leave one cousin for the other. And, um, but I think it's just the fact that she, uh, she, uh, responds to, um, to, uh, Ross's interest in a way. And, uh, dancing with him at the ball, you know, I think that should have been enough for us to think that she just considered him a distraction because, you know, other than going to balls and paying visits, drinking tea, she uh, is only standing uh, at her w- staring at her window. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. You know, and sadly, there were other things that she could do as the lady of the house, uh, things that Verity tended to do. For, on behalf of the family, like going and visiting the, the villagers, uh, going and, and, and taking, you know, uh, some donations and things like that uh, to the church, uh, you know, that type of thing uh, were all things that she could do. Yeah, it's, it's really strange to me because 
she should be doing all of those things. She should be running the household. That was her mm-hmm. job and responsibility. Yep. And she's just not doing any of it. Yep. And it's kind of odd that it was being... No, she has a house slave. She has a little house elf. Our sweet little cinnamon roll like fairy. The convention of the time, I don't think. I think... I don't understand why Charles would expect Francis's wife to do nothing. Strange. But, you know, of course, Elizabeth doesn't take the initiative to do any of these things. You know, she goes and gathers eggs, but it's not like she even begins to think about some of the things that she could do outside of playing her harp and and drinking tea. Uh, it, it, it's like that she she can't form these these decisions on her own, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, I I dislike the character of Elizabeth uh, because I never see her doing anything. She's very good at waiting. <laughs> yeah, she, she I've never seen her doing anything on her own initiative, and I think that's. That, that is bothersome. I don't think that that is how women uh, acted back in those days. So it's not one of those those things that we can pawn off on, you know, being beat down by the patriarchy. So it's time for the book club. If any of you are trying to avoid spoilers for season three, then I highly recommend you stop listening now. And we will see you next week for discussion of 103. You know, I was really happy with with the response that we had uh, for the book club. Um, I think uh, gathering this information on the blog is a little clunky, so I, I'm still trying to figure out if there's a, a better way for us to do it. Uh, but I think for purposes of our, our next section, uh, we'll just continue to, to do things uh, this way until we think of something that might work better but all in all thank you all so much for your interest and all of the comments and responses uh they were great so uh the first question that we had regarding uh the black moon book one chapters one through five was how did you read the chapters paperback ebook or audiobook uh, we had a mix of folks uh, using various different media. Uh, one of uh, our favorite answers was from All Roads Lead to the Kitchen. Uh, she is listening to it uh, on the audiobook. So when I first read about the book club, I was a bit conflicted. Uh, while I do have books one and three staring at me on my bookshelf, I haven't found time to read them yet. And one of the hardest things for me is starting a series anywhere but the beginning. However, hashtag pole darkness is hitting hard right now. And after tweeting the pole dark podcast girls and receiving a reply that she'd probably be okay starting the Black Moon with seasons one and two as a reference point, she gave in. And to be honest, it was just the tap that she needed. I've ordered books four through six from Amazon, but didn't want to take a chance that I wouldn't get them in time to join this first meeting. So I used my Audible credit for the month on the Black Moon. I'm also uh, using the audiobook uh, for this book club. I read the paperback the with the first time, and I've got to admit, I love the the audiobook 
version of the Black Moon. The guy that does the voices is kind of <laughs> hysterical. Um, Mr. Malvin's voice is high pitched. <laughs> oh my god! It's it, uh, uh, the the voice for George. Every time I hear George speak, it makes me want to just beat my dashboard to a pulp um, because he's so whiny and privileged and he's he is more uppity than any of the other folks in the book uh, in this version really so sense. Uh, <laughs> no. yeah so uh, I I've really enjoyed using the audible credit for the the black moon and and we'll probably listen to the audiobooks for the the rest of the books uh, for the book club. How about you guys? I read um, through ebook first and then I listened to on mm-hmm. Audible mm-hmm. yesterday. So I just uh, like, because I was like, I'll just reacquaint myself with it. Um, <laughs> and it was so addictive. I was, <laughs> I got halfway, like I, I start, I think I was like six minutes into chapter six this morning <laughs> when I was like, oh shit, I can't read that yet. <laughs> I'll I'll, um, I'll admit yeah. I am almost finished listening to the audiobook. I couldn't stop. Um, so, but I, I am gonna go back and re-listen to the the chapters for this week so that I can make sure I'm not speaking about something that is yet to come. But uh, ugh, I love the audiobook, and I I do it while I'm on my daily commute to work. So it it makes the commute go by much faster and more pleasant. And I try I tend not to be too troubled by the traffic <laughs> that I wind up running into. Let's see. And the second mm-hmm. question: Were you immediately drawn into the story, or did it take a while? <laughs> and Bpack sixty seven said, immediately drawn in from the circumstances of Elizabeth giving birth. I want to know what happens next with these characters and where the stories, storylines are going. <laughs> yeah, we did. It was a dramatic. Oh yeah, start. I mean, we we just jumped straight into the action. Um, you know, coming what two three two months after the end of what was series two material, the end of uh, book four, Warlegan, and so the the action is quick to pick up. Uh, from that point three new characters who's your favorite new character introduced to the product saga in the black moon book one chapter one to five and why again all rose leads to the kitchen said it's hard to pick a favorite yet but i'll go with drake i love that he has demelza's mischievous nature and can't wait to see what kind of trouble he stirs up with moana because there will be trouble right (laughs) demelza's brother and elizabeth's cousin um, oh yeah, yo! Literally, everybody, everybody picked Drake. <laughs> He's so adorable. As a Sam fan girl, I am quite disappointed that there was not more love for him. Hey, just, Sam is Sam is just way taste. too Sam is just way too intense. <laughs> with That's the, what I like whole, about him. With the whole Methodisty kind of thing, he's just he will way too intense. Every sentence, uh huh. Jesus in it, yeah. And it, so that that's a little overwhelming for me uh, with Sam. Uh, you know, I understand that you find the actor's eyebrows uh, very <laughs> exceptional to, and intriguing. To be fair, 
I liked him, <laughs> like the character before he was cast. It's not just the eyebrows. That ah, really helps. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's like Sam more for some reason. Yeah, I, I think I think as we get further into the books, uh, we start to see that he's maybe not so perfect and pure when it comes to his religious fervor. Uh, my appreciation for him softens a little bit, but right now he's just really intense. Bless his little heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be great. And I love his interactions with Jeffrey Charles. I also love the, the older Jeffrey Charles, too. Precocious, precocious little little boy that he is. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, our next question is, can you pick out a passage that strikes you as particularly profound or interesting? Please share it and why. And this was from Captain Ross Poldark. They had all but lost each other. She had been prepared to go, had been on her way out of the house. Now it seemed incredible that they had been so near to parting. The warmth of their reconciliation had been full of passion, had brought them closer in some ways than they had ever been before, all defenses down. And yet it had been a slightly feverish warmth and still was as their relationship, as if their relationship were recovering from a near mortal wound and they were trying to reassure themselves. The quieter levels of absolute trust which had existed before had not yet been regained. And uh, the thought that Ross and Demelza might have broken up is so sad. It gives me hope that relationships can overcome such heartache. Um, I, I have to agree with you, although I, I do think one of my, my favorite uh, passages is uh, something that you know we'll be bringing up shortly, which was when she tells him that she's pregnant, uh, just because it is such a, such a, a loving moment between the two of them. Uh, you know, but this, this piece, uh, is probably my my second favorite because it speaks to Ross's realization about how close he had come to losing her, uh, and and uh, I thought that it was simply beautiful. Okay, our next question: Who in the book would you like to meet, and what would you ask or say? Amanda Poldark. Uh, definitely Demelza. Uh, I would tell her that she may not feel like a heroine, but she is one. And share in an adventure, she would like to meet George, just to tell him how much an, of an arse he is, and to sass the, sass the crap out of him. Um, yeah. The Brit in me just completely cringed with you, you mispronounced arse. Arse? Arse? <laughs> I'm Aww. sorry. I'm 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 an American. I've got really, uh, you know, Arsh. I've got hard R's. <laughs> <laughs> it, but is that the way you pronounce it? Arse. Os. 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 You're an os. Yeah. It's, it's the only R I think that makes that sound. It's so strange. But yeah. Uh -huh. I think that's why you should stick to ass. <laughs> okay, I'll stick to ass. <laughs> <sighs> but 
But yeah, I think that, that most of the folks had identified either Demelza or George as the people that they would want to, to meet and uh, ask questions. Um, and I think I would probably go along with George because I would really like to slap the crap out of him. I mean, Sharon the Adventure just wants to sass him. I want to give him a backhand slap upside the head. <laughs> he would set one of his men on you. <laughs> of course he would, because, you know, he, he can't he do can't it himself. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would pick Francis so that I could give him a hug. Just be like, no. she's not worth it. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I'll marry you. <laughs> see okay our next question if you could insert yourself as a character in the book what role would you play uh, sweet garden nut said caroline uh, she is a fascinating character for that era privilege and wealth have not ruined her as a compassionate person and all roads lead to the kitchen said she would want to play a character that somehow is able to purchase trend with out from under george and subsequently kick kim and elizabeth to the curb Aunt Agatha and Joffrey Charles can stay, of course, and maybe Verity's family could move in. That would be perfect. She could be GC's surrogate mother. Plus, it needs a good airing out and brightening up. Hmm, maybe I'll find a way to live there, too, so I can become friends with Demelza and Ross by association. Or I'd be Demelza. You know, either way. <laughs> That's a great answer, and I totally endorse your your ideas. I, I am intrigued by your ideas and wish to subscribe <laughs> yes. to your newsletter. I would approve this version <laughs> of reality. Let's make it let's make it happen. Um who who would would you I don't think I'd want to be anybody else than Demelza. <laughs> yeah. yeah, me too. Although I would probably like to give a go at Caroline. Does the book remind you of your own life? An event? A person, like a friend, family member, a boss, co-worker? Amanda Poddock. The first time I read The Black Moon last summer, I was working on my master's thesis and needed a distraction from the stress. Rereading always reminds me of what I went through and what I accomplished. I haven't really found someone that any of the characters remind me of. Um, I know that I, when I read The Black Moon... Uh, Oh, gosh, I can't even remember how long ago it was. Uh, but it was right after I'd finished Warlegan and, and I needed to dive straight into it and was encouraged to make sure I had the book ready so that I could just start reading it right away. Um, uh, I think it was, it was then I'd been pretty... I'd been pretty drawn into the Poldark fandom by that point, but I think it really solidified uh, my passion around the the material and the story uh this book so that's what that's what it reminds me of i don't really have an answer to this question <laughs> like nobody nobody they're all so distinct to themselves like i can't find people in my life like them um if you were to talk with the author what would you want to know all roads lead to the kitchen, again says, I would ask to know more about Verity's marriage and home life. I think that's I think that's one of the things that I really like about the screen adaptation 
of the of series two, and you know, I'm assuming it will continue for series three, that we are able to see more of Verity and her relationship with her husband, and uh, and and which we don't in the books because she lives much farther away from uh, the action. So. I would ask if it was really rape. <laughs> for all. It's like, answer the question like, for me, man. Finish the... And then, and then we'll just it's... know, and then nobody can argue yes, about it anymore. I, I endorse that. Not for myself. I endorse that wholeheartedly. Uh, based on what you've read so far, what scenes do you hope to see depicted in the screen adaptation for the 2017 series? Uh, BPAC67 said Ross pinching DeMille's bottom. <laughs> uh, Unwin, yeah, Unwin's visit to Caroline. Because, uh, oh my God, that would be awesome because Hugh Skinner would nail that. Um, and the conversation between DeMille and Ross in bed, of course, uh, what we've already talked about. And I swear, if they cut that scene, I'm going to have to hurt somebody. Um, another... <laughs> Uh, another one I hope that they do was called out by Miss Molly 57, uh, the toads and the pond. But that's coming later. Just keep reading. Just keep reading. I'll just leave that there. How about you guys? Any other scenes you want to see depicted? I guess my the Caroline scenes, the Caroline and Verity stuff was adorable. They were like, I don't know you, but let's <laughs> let's be friends. And um I guess the Drake handing Moana flowers was cute. Yes. I really want to see that. Because I, I think it first of all, I think it will f shoot beautifully. Um, you know, if they're standing amidst this field of, of beautiful flowers and he gives her this you know, very pretty bouquet. I think it will look beautiful on screen, but it's also just so dreamy and sweet and adorable. It reminds me of of Ross and Demelza as they're falling in love. Was that all of our questions? Yeah, I think so. But thanks, everybody. Let's see. Yeah, book uh, book one. There are twelve chapters in book one, so. Let's go ahead and read uh, chapters six through ten for the for next week's book club, and uh, we'll ask the question about uh, pacing as well, so that you can give us your feedback on on whether we need to speed up or slow down. So, thanks again for your great participation. We look forward to hearing from you uh, next week or through this next week about the next chapters. So, messages! And we only got a couple of them this week. Which is fine. I'm good with that, considering we've got the book, the book club. Yay. That's true. That's true. Let's see. Uh, one from Anonymous. Hi, I really enjoyed the podcast going down memory lane. I agree with you, Michelle, with what you say about Ross. Thanks for answering my questions. I uh, just think Debbie should of perhaps made it more believable to the audience to see Ross's breakdown over events. Debbie chose to make Ross harder than the book at times. Also hard to imagine a man still obsessed with someone for over 10 years as well. Three years, yes, but 10? 
it's strange that he blamed Elizabeth for Julia, but was still obsessed. Now, like, I feel like Ross wasn't obsessed with her for 10 years, because I think there were giant chunks of, chunks of that time that he honestly just thought of her as a friend or an ex. Mm-hmm. And it was only when his marriage was struggling and he was dissatisfied generally that he looked towards Elizabeth with affection. Uh, mm-hmm. I can see how that wasn't really made clear enough in the series, though. But then the kind of internal struggle that Ross goes through is very hard to vocalize on screen. And I think that's just the nature of TV adaptations. They're forced to make characters more elusive. And so he might appear colder. Yeah. Um, be sure to check out the Masterpiece podcast uh, it's available on iTunes, and it's dated November 28th. Uh, Aiden is sharing some of his insights about Ross's character, and it's really interesting. It, it shows that he totally gets this character, uh, but uh, it's a, a great listen if you haven't already heard it. So I would encourage you to, to do that. And our second question was from All Roads Lead to the Kitchen again. She said, hi, ladies. I often find myself almost feeling sorry for George. I feel like he wants to be in the light that is Ross so badly that maybe if Ross had thrown him a bone, things might have turned out somewhat less hostile later on. He didn't have to mank or be friends with him. But do you think a little kindness or cordialness uh, on Ross's end could have brought on less venom and spite from George's down the line? Or do you think that George wanted to be Ross so badly that it wouldn't have mattered? I agree with that to a certain extent because I think they both share equal responsibility for the way that relationship became animus. Yes, I seriously doubt they would have been the friends that George envisioned them to be because they're just too different as people and they have fundamentally opposed belief systems but... They could have had a cordial relationship where they agree to disagree or just make like polite small talk when they're forced to be in social scenarios together. They both do that throughout the novel with other men they dislike, so they're capable of it. And I do believe that Ross's internal hostility was the initial hostility was the catalyst for the escalating pettiness. But then George is a grown man and he could have let the incivility go. But you know, George. Yeah, I, I, you know, I agree with you. I think, I, I think that the the fact that they were on kind of completely different sides of the uh, social class, the events of the day, you know, they were both on different sides of of that. So I, they wouldn't have had much in common to be able to be friends about but they you know they they could have managed to deal with one another in public situations with more grace if ross hadn't been so snarky uh about george's situation and if george didn't have such a huge chip on his shoulder about you know his humble beginnings so yeah. They're both idiots. <laughs> yeah. I mean they're both grown they're both grown ass men. They need to act like it. So anyway. Let's see. Our next uh comment was from Amanda Poldark. Um 
Ross doesn't seem to enjoy his one-night stand with Margaret and decides to completely avoid Ruth, the other woman. How much of that do you think is his own dislike of casual sex or Joshua's bad behavior? And how much of that is continued hurt over Elizabeth's rejection? This episode kind of differs from the book a bit on this. Well, I don't think Ross has a problem with casual sex. <laughs> I think what happened there was what he he made a reckless impulsive decision and then he regretted it the next morning because it's a pattern he repeats throughout the series mm -hmm. even to a certain extent when he first sleeps with Demelza he just gets into these dark moods and then he doesn't think and I think his response the next morning with Margaret is him just waking up like oh okay well that didn't help me feel better <laughs> <laughs> and he obviously did it because he was pissed about Elizabeth and I don't think he cared one way one jot for Margaret or that he has a particular stance on casual sex I don't feel like mm -hmm. he cares yeah well it's clear that the man made an impression on Margaret bow chicka wow wow <laughs> <laughs> Her thirst is real and lasting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, the, the reference that Amanda makes uh, as to the, the episode differing from the books, uh, she's right. Because in the book, uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I read uh, the book that this comes from, that... Ross actually does wind up dancing with Ruth. Um, and yeah, I think so. he is somewhat interested. I mean, he, he looks at her and goes, oh, well, maybe. she's pretty cute. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. So I know that, that there is a, a, a little bit of interest on Ross's behalf that's in the book that winds up uh, kind of flying in the face of how it was depicted in the show. And that's it from us for this week. Thank you so much for listening and continuing to get in contact with us. We really love and appreciate hearing from you guys. Our next podcast will be out next week and we will be discussing episode 103 as well as covering the book club reading. So feel free to contact us on our blog, pauldarkpodcast.tumblr.com or tweet us at pauldarkpodcast. Have a good week and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Take care.
gotten 